This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, this is Sonal. On the Offscript podcast today, we speak to best-selling author, podcaster, and journalist Malcolm Gladwell about what it takes to have a professional career in a creative field. The Offscript podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. I fortunately got the chance to sit down with Malcolm Gladwell. He was so generous with his time. I was told I had 15 minutes and he kind of just didn't shoo me off. So I kept going for about 25 or so. So I got a nice chunk of time to sit down with him. It was absolutely lovely. 10 to 15 minutes is an interview. And then after 20, 25, it becomes a proper conversation. Yeah. And that's what that to me elevates it. And it's the ones that are, are willing to give you that time that can potentially elevate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's very little you can do in 10 minutes in terms yeah. of at least the way we all tend to approach interviews and the way we like to do them, which is to kind of get deep a little bit and get into things. Now, he was in town last week to speak at the World Conference on Creative Economy 2021. It was an event hosted at Expo by the Ministry of Culture and Youth. So I'm very happy that they were able to connect us. The event theme here was inclusively creative, cultivating the future. So there were ministers from around the world attending this meeting and Malcolm was there to speak essentially about what it takes and what it's like to have a creative career. Now, in terms of his background, for people who aren't as familiar, he's been a journalist at The Washington Post and New Yorker. He's written a number of books. Most of them have been New York Times bestsellers. Let's start with The Tipping Point, which came out in 2000, Blink, Outliers, David and Goliath, Talking to Strangers, uh, and The Bomber Mafia, which is his most recent one. Right. You've read a few of these, I take it? I've actually only only read two. I read The Tipping Point, which I absolutely loved back in the day, and uh, Talking to Strangers more recently, right. which a friend had given me for my birthday because she had loved it. And since then, you're the second person I've given it to. Okay. So it's one of those books that kind of, you know, you recommend it to others, I think. All right. Yeah. He also hosts podcasts. He hosts Revisionist History. Um, that's been going on for a few years. And he also does some musical projects, which we'll talk about as well. I caught up with him right before his talk that he was giving at Expo. And The thing is, is he's probably one of the most successful authors of our generation, at least nonfiction wise, certainly. And his career had a pretty surprising start. He grew up in Canada, graduated from his university uh, with a degree in history, and he wanted to go on to graduate school, but his grades weren't good enough. And then he thought he would go into advertising, but he couldn't get a job. He got rejected from all of the advertising jobs he tried to get. And it just, to me, was a little bit surprising because when you think of somebody who's as successful as he is currently on the world stage to think that that's how his start was it just caught me off guard a little bit so i thought this was a good place to start with him how do you process that kind of rejection especially when you look back on it from a position of success do you reflect back on it in a certain kind of way because it could be tempting to connect the dots i don't know about you but i like to look back and create a narrative and connect the dots of oh okay maybe this didn't work out but it led me here so i just asked him how he processed it all I could be wrong, but I think that I could have been happy doing any number of different things. And you're right, I started out my career wanting to go into advertising and couldn't get a job. Had I gotten a job in advertising, I'm sure I would have had a very happy career. Um, I'm just by nature interested in whatever I happen to be immersed in. I I think of it as, you know, the one thing that does strike me looking back on my career is just how how serendipitous everything was. It was just a series of accidents and good fortune and circumstance and all those kinds of things. And it's made me very skeptical of the value of planning things too much. When you plan, you're you're assuming the world is a kind of orderly, predictable place. The world is neither orderly nor predictable. And I think a lot of us would do much better if we just gave up on the idea of trying to figure out 
in advance the way things will work out and just kind of um, react to opportunity as opposed to trying to, uh, to, to, to strategize our way forward. Could you give me a little bit of an example when you say your life has been quite serendipitous? I, I got a job by accident out of college at a magazine. A friend of mine showed me the, an advertisement for a job. I applied for the job, never thinking I would get it. Somehow got it. Had that job for four months, five months. Got fired. Moved to D.C. And by sheerest happenstance, I had a group house in Washington, D.C. Young people rent these houses and or that have four or five bedrooms, and you fill them up often with strangers. And I was in a group house, and we happened to rent out one of the rooms to a young man named Jacob Weisberg, who happened to be working for a magazine, and he knew everyone in the magazine world. And because I, I'd never met him before, it just was a guy who answered an ad for a room. I became friends with him, and because, through him, I got a job at a magazine. And in fact, the company I'm now, I've now started almost 40, no, 35 years later, I started a company, an audio company called Pushkin. Who did I start it with? Jacob, the same guy who answered the ad in 1985 from, for a room in my group house. You know, I didn't plan that. And if someone else had taken that room, I would not be a journalist right now. I was planning on going to business school. It's a little bit crazy for me to think of somebody who's written the number of books that he has and had the amount of success he's had in writing. The idea that he could have been a finance guy or a business guy, you know, it, yeah. it is a little bit strange to think about. And also what he was saying there about serendipity, I, you think about chance encounters that happen all the time that shape the way that your life goes. Do you have any of those that strike you? Because I ended up here at this radio because of, um, you know, on this show, because I had bumped into somebody about a year before I actually got in touch with our boss and just at an event. And I had known her as a work acquaintance. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm working at ARN at the moment. So shout out to Anita for that. And she's like, yeah, I was like, oh, they work with freelancers. Uh, and she said, yeah. And that, I guess, got processed in the back of my brain a year later when I wanted freelance work. I thought, hey, why not reach out? But if that conversation hadn't happened, would have never thought about yeah. ARN. A massive chance encounter brought me here as well. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't even Chris. It was a mutual friend of ours that I was out for a drink with uh, who I was aware that there might be a vacancy here, but hadn't really thought about it and was actually planning on moving back to the UK. Mm. This was 2016. And uh, I was just out for a drink, kind of umming and ahhing. I'd done some freelance. And he said, give Chris a shout. Yeah. And I texted him there and then. And then a couple of weeks later... I was joining ARN. It yeah. was crazy. But the one thing I would challenge there is I'm not sure about the advice to let things happen to you. Yeah. I don't know. That's probably something I've done too much of in my time. And like, I think I look at people who do strategize and actually do be proactive and do seek opportunity. And that's where I feel you really do sort of get to a different echelon of, of kind of potential or, or, or a kind of avenue of career fulfillment that I think if you just let things wash over you, I think there's only there's only so much that that will that will do for you. There's only so much happenstance that that will come your way. Does that make sense? I do agree with you in that. I think it's helpful to have a direction because otherwise you might end up somewhere and think, "How did I get here? I don't want to be here." But I think the way I took Malcolm's advice is, don't be so stuck to planning that if things don't go according to plan, that it totally takes over you. Yeah, that's fair. You know, yeah. that's the way I, I read what he yeah. was saying, at least. And we talked a little bit about essentially dealing with rejection early on in life and how he moved forward from that. And he mentioned there that his life was quite serendipitous, that he at one point was planning to go to business school. But because of an acquaintance he met, he ended up 
getting into journalism. So it's quite weird to think that somebody who's made their sort of whole life in a creative field could have been a business guy. So I was kind of thinking about how we put ourselves into categories sometimes. I mean, I think this happens naturally in school. At some point in time, you're expected to specialize yeah. in a certain field. I know, especially in the British system, you really pick that quite early on. They just whittle it on. down. You go from 10 to three, and then of course, as a degree, you choose effectively one. Right. And it's an, an early decision that you make. So I kind of was just thinking, do we actually have to choose in the way that society tells us we do? Because I'm somebody who's interested in everything, and it was quite difficult for me to finally choose a path. What advice does he have for people who are trying to figure out where they fit? I suspect that most people, you can fit in far more places than you think you can fit, A. And B, you shouldn't be scared about, particularly when you're young, you shouldn't be scared about taking kind of outrageous risks, so every now and again, you know, someone just out of college in the United States asks me for ad career advice. And the first thing I always tell them is, leave the United States. I mean, why not? You can always go back. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be the safe choice. But why not just roll the dice and go somewhere else in the world and meet different people and try different things? Um, and I think it goes to, uh, today in my talk, I'm going to talk about the importance of being uncomfortable in living a creative life. And the time to be uncomfortable is in your 20s. You should not be making decisions about based on where you will feel most welcomed or most whether where your circumstances are most familiar. No, that's when you have like three kids and you're 45 years old, sure, those are good considerations. When you're 20, 22, whatever, those are the last things you should be concerned about. You should do the thing that makes you feel the most uncomfortable, just to see, check it out, see whether that's something that you might find some unexpected joy or opportunity in. When is the time that you've done that in your life where you felt either taken an outrageous risk or felt very uncomfortable, but that it somehow led to a growth that you didn't expect? One example would be I, when I lost my first job, I was an illegal immigrant. I, was, I had lost my visa, and I was in the United States. I was a Canadian citizen, and I decided not to go home, but just live illegally for a while. It's fine. You know, lots of people do that. Or I was very happy at the Washington Post. I was there for 10 years. It was a dream job. It was just, you know, I could do whatever I wanted to. And then one day I decided, you know what? I'm too comfortable. It's too easy. I should just leave. Try something else. And similarly... My last book I wrote to update this, a book called The Bomber Mafia, it's very different from any book I've ever written before, completely different. And, you know, I just decided that it was time to try a different kind of, tell a different kind of story. Did I do that because I thought I would sell more books? No. Uh, I did that because I just think it's interesting to do something different. And who knows where that'll lead, you know? I don't know if... There's something that felt kind of privileged about that position to me, because here he is telling me that as somebody who has made it, who has been supremely successful, is very financially comfortable saying, you know, I did it and it worked out for me. Um, does it work out for everybody? But I do think also when you do it without too much abandon, maybe it's and you pursue your passion, maybe you're bound to, to end up being successful. You know, when you really, risk, when you, you really give yourself to it without being so scared about having a safety blanket, maybe that is the key to actually being successful in anything you do. But then if you don't have that safety blan blanket, then it, it's a must win situation mm. for you. So that creates in itself its own pressure. And obviously, if it doesn't work out, which it might not, then what do you do then? Right. 
Exactly. And I think there is a reality, of course, that people have to eat. They have to pay rent. There are bills to pay. What about the money? It's easy to say don't think about money, but there is kind of a practicality to that. Well, my first job was $9,000 a year. I lived in a, someone's basement. I could afford to eat out once a week. I didn't buy anything. I was totally happy. I mean, I just sort of adjusted my lifestyle. My second job, I think, was $12,000 a year. And I lived a very similar kind of life. I didn't own anything of any value. I didn't spend really any money. I did a little part-time work on the side to make ends meet. I think that you, to be in your 20s when you should be experimenting, you really do have to put your financial anxieties aside. I mean, unless you have very legitimate reasons. If you are married and have children, you don't have a choice. You, you have to take care of people, and you should make money a consideration then. But, you know, many people in their early 20s do not have those kinds of obligations, and they, they shouldn't let that opportunity, the opportunity to maximize your freedom, you shouldn't let that go to waste. You should jump on it. Let's talk a little bit about his work. Well, sorry, Rob, you look like you were... No, I was just going to say my 20s feels like a long time ago for me, so... (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. That's not advice that's relevant to us anymore, What about 40s, Malcolm? What are we we saying here? (laughs) You know, he did say once you have a certain amount of responsibilities, it's a different picture. Yeah. You know, you do have to think about those things. No, absolutely true. Yeah, I don't know what that means for still being able to pursue your freedoms in some way or another. I think we're all just trying to work that out, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we are. We indeed, go. indeed. Um, but let's talk a little bit about his work. So Outliers is one of his best-known books. He talks about, remember that theory about 10,000 hours, basically, to become an expert in anything? That was this Malcolm. Is, this is him. This is from him. And I did ask him now that he's been writing for easily more than 10,000 hours, if he feels like an expert or basically how it feels to him versus how he started. And very diplomatically, he said he tries not to think of being better or worse now than when he first started. He's just different. Okay. Very considered yeah, answer. Exactly. I want to start with Talking with Strangers, the book that I gave to you and a relatively recent book. It came out in 2019. It's the one I read most re- recently and you know how my memory is. So <laughs> it was the easiest one really to focus in on and he's got in his writing whether we're talking about tipping point or outliers or talking with strangers there's almost a premise so with talking with strangers it was almost a counterintuitive premise the idea that we all seem to think like we can read people well right and his point is is actually when you look at the evidence that's not true at all Mm. And he kind of takes you through. It's almost like this. He puts it out as a hypothesis and then presents you with numeral pieces of anecdotal and then also research-based evidence to support that point. So I asked him where these ideas come from. It's almost impossible to answer that question because I don't really know. I know that there are things, there are ideas that I'm that I start to play with. And, um, and when I, there's an idea that I play with for a long time, then I realize, oh, there's probably something there. The truth is that there are a hundred different ways in which these, um, there's, not a, there's no system. In the case of talking to strangers, I just became aware that so many of the, there were a huge number of high profile stories in the news that were really about all about the same thing, which was, instances where someone misunderstood a stranger. Sometimes the someone was all of us. Sometimes the someone was someone who was impaired in some way. But they're all versions of the same thing, that situations where you would have thought the stranger was transparent turned out to be very different, and the stranger wasn't. And that was kind of interesting to me, because I thought, you know, well, why are we bad with strangers? You'd, You'd think we should be good with strangers. 
And I feel like that is only intensifying as the world sort of shrinks kind of metaphorically in terms of the fact that we're exposed to so many more people mm. and the sort of ideologies that we carry are so much more polarized seemingly now than they were maybe 15, 20, 30 years ago. I know that everyone, there's always political divides, but it, it just feels like we're going through a time now where people are really railing for the very extreme kind of ends of the spectrums. And that's where these disagreements and kind of failures to understand one another are probably stemming from. Yeah, I mean, he touches on that a lot. And you could see that he said there, there were a lot of things in the news around that time. I mean, he talks about Sandra Bland. He talks about some of the race issues when it comes to specifically police and African-American um, civilians in the U.S. That's a big part of the book and the case that he makes. Um, but another striking story in the book, and this to me was unbelievable, it was all about an intelligence agency story between the U.S. and Cuba. Going back in time a little bit, it was all about how the U.S. thought they had a number of agents in their own department or even recruited as double agents who were Cuban intelligence but double agents for the U.S. And it turned out they were all actually working for Cuba. It's a very brilliantly told story that unravels in this book. And it's all about this epic intelligence failure um, and a failure to read the other person clearly. So what I thought was interesting is the amount of detail that he was able to go into, the amount of finding a story like this, but then getting people to talk about something that could be seen as a very embarrassing incident. At the heart of the story is the counterintelligence officer for the Defense Intelligence Agency who encountered this and interviewed this Cuban spy, and I just went to see him. I just called him. He's retired. He lives up in, I think, Wisconsin. And I just called him up, and he was delighted. I met him in the public library of his hometown, and we chatted for several hours. And I think sometimes we assume that people are unwilling to talk about difficult or, or embarrassing experiences they've had. In my experience, the opposite is true, that as long as someone understands your intentions... They're quite happy to talk to you about things that might otherwise seem embarrassing or difficult. And in many ways, I was much easier on... So this was a counterintelligence officer who was fooled by the Cuban spy. And he was very hard on himself. He really felt he had um, made a, an unforgivable error, professional error. And I was actually... I don't think he did make it unforgivable. I think he was just being human. So I was actually much easier on him than he was on himself. And I think he understood that. And so when, you, when people understand that you're talking to them with a certain degree of generosity and, under, and empathy, they'll talk to you about anything. That's my, been my great discovery as a journalist. Let's talk about what he's up to now. One of his most recent projects is an audio bit, audiobook, and it's all based around the musician Paul Simon. So I approached Paul Simon about two years ago and asked him whether he would just sit down with me and have a conversation about his career. And he said, yes. And so I ended up talking to him for almost 40 hours. And we just had these wide-ranging conversations in which he would sometimes play music. We'd sometimes listen to music together. I'd ask him questions. We'd have little mini arguments. And then I took those, all that tape, and I cut it down and then added a kind of commentary and produced this audiobook called Miracle and Wonder. Um, which came out a couple weeks ago. It just was incredibly interesting because he's someone who's been creative for, at the center of the musical conversation for 60 years, which is an incredible thing when you think about it. Just literally having that conversation, we neither of us really would identify with being fans of Paul Simon. Yeah, I mean, I kind of know Simon and Garfunkel, like I can identify as a group, but I wouldn't mm. be able to specifically 
tell you one of their songs or like identify a melody in my head. I don't think. Mrs. Robinson okay. would be the classic one from oh, right. um, Dustin Hoffman's film. The what Graduate. Was it the Graduate. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he did mention that Paul Simon keeps doing what he's doing because he finds it fun. So even in this exercise where they're spending a lot of time together for this book, Malcolm said it was clear that Paul found so much interest and purpose in just doing this new project and talking about and explaining his work. He saw it as a new creation. And that's why he enjoys it so much. And Malcolm said, you know, if, if I'm finding that level of purpose when I'm 79, I'll be really happy. I asked him what he learned about the artists that he found quite surprising. And he said that it's he took enormous risks. You know, he did a Broadway play. None of his peers did Broadway plays. Rock musicians don't do Broadway plays. He did. Didn't work. It was devastating for him. But he did it. He thought his career was over in his late 70s, early 80s. Wasn't selling records the same way. And, you know, he goes to South Africa and makes Graceland and reinvents himself. You know, he was one of the biggest recording artists in the world with Art Garfunkel in the early 70s. And then he just breaks up with Art Garfunkel, decides to try something else. That urge to reinvent himself and take enormous risks was incredibly inspiring to me. He is the opposite of complacent. And you realize complacency is the great enemy of creativity. How do you feel about that yes, statement, Rob? Absolutely spot on. Right? I think about complacency so, so Coming all from the time. someone who is frequently complacent <laughs> about things. Absolutely Has this inspired you to challenge your complacency? Yeah, well, I, I'm always kind of wrestling with it. Yeah. No, for sure. Me too. I'm exactly Usually unsuccessfully. <laughs> well, let's get to one quick last thought from Malcolm, because I asked him about how he deals with failures, and he made it clear to me that he doesn't really... He couldn't quite relate to that word, so I said setback. We reframed it a little bit. And again, he said he doesn't think of life that way so much. I think life is a series of experiments, and the whole point of an experiment is that you don't know how it's going to turn out. So you enter into an experiment with the expectation that it might fail, and that's fine. If you think of it as an experiment, then you're fine with that. If you think of it as a choice and you fail, that can be quite devastating. But the whole point of experimentation is that you're not making choices, you're just trying something and letting, sort of going and learning from whatever the outcome is. It's a very freeing way to think about things. And I've always thought of things as, as experiments, not choices. And so don't really, has there really been something? I've tried things. For example, I spent, one time spent two years trying to write a, not full time, but actually a lot of time, trying to write a screenplay for Hollywood. And it ended up going nowhere. You know, was it a rational use of my time? No. Was it a lot of fun? Totally. Did I learn things? A whole lot. I didn't make a dime. And I, you know, squandered, not squandered, spent two years doing something that didn't, didn't line my pockets and didn't. But I did meet a bunch of people in a million different ways. I put that experience to good use later on. It was a really good experiment. It failed, but it was an, an important failure, a useful failure. You know what? This show has been a great long three-year experiment, hasn't it, Simon? And we still haven't quite decided if it's been a success or failure. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I think we're know, the ones that have to judge that, frankly. Interesting advice and thoughts from Malcolm. I think it's fair to say it's been polarizing between the two of us. We've been discussing even um, in the breaks some of these pieces of advice and how we feel about them. But definitely, I like that last one, the idea yeah. of not s setting your sight on the idea of success or failure, but just trying things which Great. I thought was quite nice. No, very much so. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 